Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website, ericlevy.com, under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy and I'm pleased to bring to you Chapter 1 of the Book of Job, the Sefer Eov. Before I begin teaching the Book of Job, the Book of Eov, I have to recognize my teachers who helped me develop my approach to Tanakh in general and to this book in particular. So first of all, I need to give my recognition and thanks to Professor Yishayao Maori of Haifa University who taught me this specific book. And next, I'd like to thank Rabbi Dr. Mordechai Cohen and Professor Steiner of YU's Revel Graduate School, uh, both of who taught me to be very precise and exact with syntax and semantics, uh, especially when dealing with biblical poetry, which makes up the greater portion of this book. I need to also thank Rabbi Yoel Ben-Nun for blazing the way in Tanakh teaching, and last but not least, Rabbi Menachem Liutek, who put me on the path of uh, being a good, uh, being a Tanakh teacher, I think hopefully being a good Tanakh teacher, and certainly inspired me a great deal and gave me a lot of the knowledge that I have today. As a semi-ironic point, Rabbi Liebteg himself does not actually advise teaching Eov, Safer Eov, in high school, because the teacher tends to teach himself, and not the book itself. And I think we need to, to heed Rabbi Liebteg's warnings, even though obviously this is not high school, um, it's generally speaking an adult forum, uh, but we need to heed Rabbi Liebteg's warnings because between the difficult words of the book of Eov, and the book of Eov seems to go out of its way to find the most difficult words and phrasings uh, that it can, um, and also the very difficult theological arguments, which do not necessarily match our modern understanding of theodicy, which is the attempt to justify God's action in this world, um, or even medieval understanding of theodicy. So with the lack of um, the book of Job matching what we understand now, or how we deal with the issue of theodicy now, so teachers tend to teach their own philosophical ideas, and their own theological ideas, rather than essentially bringing to you what the book of Eov says itself. So instead, what I plan to do for the next 42 chapters, and God willing, the next 42 days, is to let Eov, and obviously the author of the book of Eov, speak for themselves. This may wind up leaving many issues resolved, but then again, when it comes to theodicy, it is impossible to know God. It is impossible to understand, um, uh, always understand or perhaps ever understand really what God is is doing, except when he is explicitly says so, which is rare. So it's my job to tell you what Job and his three questionable friends, Eliphaz, Tsofar, and Bildad, plus Elihu and God, what they express in the book. And then I'll attempt to demonstrate what the author's goals are by bringing those characters on the stage, so to speak, and the format and structure that he does. And in the end, if we're left with unsatisfying answers to the issues of uh, theodicy, well, that should not surprise anybody, because to paraphrase God in this book, in the book of Job, humans cannot master the behemoth or the leviathan, and until we can, we're simply just babes in the wood. So nonetheless, even though there is a certain impossibility of understanding the big picture, which is what God says in this book, uh, the big picture, which is that God creates and and sees everything, and we cannot see what God sees, that should not, nonetheless not stop us from attempting the impossible, from attempting to understand 
God's actions in this world and what the author of the book of Job is trying to say about them. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, the, uh, and, and then the final chapter, 42, from verse 7 and on, wrap up the poetic discourse on theodicy with a backstory. Job is introduced as a righteous and a wealthy man whose kids are a really appropriately enjoy their life of plenty. On the day of assembly, which we'll take a look at later, the angels come before God. God shows off the righteousness of Job, almost brags about the righteousness of Job. And that righteousness is then challenged by God's prosecuting attorney, the Satan. The Satan asserts that Job only does good because good things always happen to Job. Uh, and if bad things happen to Job, then Job would not be a good person. God allows the Satan to destroy Job's children and possessions so that the Satan can try to prove his point and God try to prove his point that Job is good because it's the right thing to do. Uh, although he warns the Satan not to harm Job in person and then they will see whether Job turns on God or not. When Job does not turn on God, the Satan says that should Job himself be ravaged, that is, the punishments be inflicted on his own body, then he will turn against God. So once again, God gives Satan the, the rights to afflict but not kill Job, and Job holds out in his external goodness, although it is clear that the turmoil is eating up, uh, eating him up inside. By the end of the story, after Job accepts the words of God, this is over in chapter 42, God restores and in fact increases Job's former wealth and health, and so the book ends. The story as opposed to the center arguments, which are written in poetry, the story, the rapping story in chapter 1, 2, and the end of chapter 42 is written in prose. And in fact, it reads like a drama. And in fact, I believe that it may have been written to be performed on stage and may have been performed on stage. Uh, some scholars say that the original book was just uh, was just the poetic discourse on God's justice in this world, on theodicy, and that the surrounding story was added later. And it's impossible to say for sure exactly when the book was uh, authored. Even the rabbis in the Talmud, Baba Batra, have a hard time pinning the date of of Job. Some date it very early, some date it very late. However, in my opinion, since the poetic discourse sometimes references information in the story, and the story sometimes references information that seems to appear only in the poetic discourse, an example of that would be the death of Job's children and Job's assertion that he has committed no sin. That's in the story, and it's also in the discourse, and it seems to reference each other. So I would say that we need to look at this book as a unity. So the the book of Job, if we want to create kind of a weird uh, image... The book of Job is, in my mind, kind of like an Oreo cookie, uh, but very on the cr- heavy on the cream center and light on the surrounding cookie. So the author, author created this surrounding cookie, the surrounding envelope, to to set up the creamy discourse. Uh, and the reason why he put the cookie on the outside is because he needed to interest the audience and created this kind of drama, this exciting drama. Um, to catch the the audience's interest, and once he had their interest, then he penned the uh, that then he brings you to the actual discourse, which is very difficult poetry, uh, because only by really looking for the most complex imagery in poetry can one hope to explore uh, the sorrow that Job feels and the questions of theodicy that he asks against God and that. Um, and that his friends grapple with as well.
Again, theodicy, just to review that idea, theodicy is the attempt by man to justify God's actions in this world. So a bit simplistically, theodicy explores, quote, why bad things happen to good people, end quote. But there's obviously more to it than that, although that is a center idea. Now, as I read and translate the first chapter, I will point out the parts which to me indicate that it's a drama, actually even a stage performance. Also, I'll talk about the Satan when we get to him uh, and when he makes his appearance on the stage. There was a man in the land of Uts, Job was his name, and the man was pure and straight and God-fearing and avoided evil. The best guess for the land of Uts, of course in English it would be the land of Oz, uh, but uh, we'll just stick with the Hebrew translation, which the Hebrew, uh, fin- uh, the way to pronounce it, which is Uts. So the best guess for Uts is the land of Edom, whose B'nai Kedem, the old ones, were considered very wise men, of really of the highest order. Note that the verse from Lamentation from the book of Echa says, chapter 4, verse 21 says, Sisi v'simchi bat edom yoshevet be'eretz utz. Be happy, be merry, you daughters of Edom, you Edomites, who dwell in the land of Utz. So Utz really is equated with a location in Edom or perhaps a, a, a synonym for Edom. In the book of uh, Jeremiah, I think around chapter 26, 27, Utz is also mentioned as an area in Edom. Now, this, of course, assumes that the book is written close to the time of the fall of the first temple, when that land of Edom was was um, uh, was known as the land of Uts, because both the book of Lamentations and the book of Jeremiah were written by Jeremiah close to the destruction of the first temple. And in fact, as I read the book, you'll see that that is my assumption. I, I am assuming that, based on the prose part of the story, the type of Hebrew that's in it, um, I think that it's probably best to date the book towards the uh, fall of the first temple, the 6th century BC, maybe a little bit into the 5th century BCE. Now, what's interesting is that um, the Talmud points out that the lack of a specific local setting for the story, that is, we only have this generic idea of Uts, means that it may be a parable. And it's, un- it's, it's important to understand what that what the rabbis meant by saying that the book of Job is a parable or may be a parable. That doesn't mean that Job never existed. And in fact, he is mentioned, Job himself is mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 14, verse 14, as one of the three righteous men whose righteousness saved them even though they lived among wicked people who were to be destroyed. The other two are Noah, of course, and another character named Daniel. It's pronounced Daniel, although written Daniel, and for a long time people just assumed it was talking about Daniel of i.e. of Daniel and the lion's den, which we have a book of him. But that was always bothering people, because why would Ezekiel be talking about Daniel, who would have only been a lad while Ezekiel was writing his book, and therefore created quite a bit of problem. Then, by uh, essentially in the last 150 years, we've dug up a lot of material from the ancient Near East, and we've dug up quite a few stories about a great leader of people called Daniel, who was a uh, leader of the Ammonite nation up in the Syria area and really about how many sagas and stories were written. So therefore, that's uh, almost certainly who Ezekiel is referring to. And since he refers to Job as well, it's clear that Job is really quite the, uh, a real character. So what do they mean to say by saying that uh, the book of Job is a parable? Well, it means that while the events, and and more importantly, the discussion that takes place 
in this book may be a parable. I mean, with the Satan bouncing around and with, uh, and the actual sitting down and the back and forth between the characters, that part is a parable. And, and, and it was written essentially by a Jewish wisdom writer, by an inspired writer, in order to set up and discuss the issue of theodicy, which is a very important issue uh, around the fall of the first temple when people are wondering, you know, uh, why everything's going so bad. However, the character around whom the story revolves, this Eov, this Job, was a, a well-known, wise, and righteous man. So what the author is doing is saying, this could have happened, because this is the way the guy like Job that we know and love, this is a guy who love, who fears God, this is the way that he would have responded to the kind of situation that I'm putting before you. It reminds me a little bit like um, George Washington and the cherry tree. I have no idea if the cherry tree uh, story is true, but the reason why the parable is placed around George Washington is because his his honesty was so well known that one could then place a story around him and have it be not only believable, but the character itself helps to convey the message that the storyteller wanted to tell. That doesn't mean that it's fake. It's quite real, and, and one should not mistake a, a, a parable as being fake. It's just that the situation is probably contrived around a very real person to discuss a very, very real issue of why does God, why do bad things happen to uh, good people, why do good things happen to bad people, and the issue of theodicy in general. So just to review, first the book of Job is is a discourse on theodicy, an attempt to understand and justify the ways of God. Um, second, the discourse on theodicy is surrounded by a drama of Job struggling with the horrors brought upon him by the character of an avenging angel of God, with God's permission. And third, the discourse and the drama is set around a well-known wise and righteous man, probably an Edomite named Job, in order to make the story and the discourse believable and therefore educational, edifying. Now, getting back to the actual story. And he, Job, had born to him seven sons and three daughters. Now, we'll see this number ten, or it's multiple, very often, which carries a very dramatic flavor. Note also that the number seven indicates a certain wholeness. So by having seven children, what indicates a completion of the natural process, like the seven days of the week, the seven years of the Shemitah cycle, which indicates that Job was really blessed with a complete family. And his flocks were 7,000 sheep and goats and 3,000 camels. So there's that number 10, made up of 700 and 300 this time, or a multiple of 10, just like his children were 7 and 3. And he had 500 pair of cattle and 500 donkeys, which again is a thousand, which is a multiple of ten, and a great deal of arable land, and the man was greater than any of the Bnei Kedem, these eastern wise people, uh, indicating a, a very ancient and wise civilization. The reason why Bnei Kedem were considered wise is because Kedem is where the sun rises, and people used to look back at their elders to gain knowledge of history, so Bnei, uh, a knowledge of uh, real wisdom in general, and therefore Bnei Kedem were considered to be very the old men, the aged men, the wise men. And that's why they're called that the more ancient civilization, the more wise it is. And we'll see that issue come up a little bit later as well. And his sons would go and make a feast in the house of each one 
that is once a day per house of each one's each of the sons, that each son was assigned a a certain day, like uh, son number one had Sunday, son number two had uh, Monday, son number three had had Tuesday, and they would invite their sisters to eat and drink with them. Now, sometimes people look for things that are sinister here. Some son, sin, crime, which justifies Job's punishment and the punishment that's brought down on his children as well. Uh, you know, people smell a party and they figure there must be something, uh, uh, inappropriate going on. But really, there's nothing here that would really be reading it into the story. And the truth is, it's anachronistic, anachronistic to accuse them of, of indiscriminate spending and flaunting their wealth. Uh, the author makes no such aspersion. It does not accuse them of any sin, not for the way they spend their money, and not for the fact that they're having their uh, party, uh, each one in a, you know, every day of the week in a different one's house. In fact, Eov himself will assume that the biggest possible sin that they may have committed was that one of them may have thought something inappropriate about God. Also, it's it's not at all clear. I think the verse should not be read that they, they that this party is running every week, which means you know Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and then the next week they start again and then again and then again. We'll see that they were probably only ran once a year or maybe a few, uh, maybe twice during harvest seasons, much like our seven day Passover and our seven day Sukkot holidays. Um, we'll see that. This implication that it's really not running every single week, but more like once a year, is indicated from the from the use of the phrase kol hayamim, which does not mean every day, but it means every year, as we'll see in the upcoming verse. Vayihi ki hikifu yimei hamishteh vayishlach yov vayikadoshem vehishkim baboker vehe'ela olot mispar kulam ki amar yov ulai chatu vanayu verechu Elohim bilvavam. And when the days of the banquet completed their cycle, Job would send to prepare them. Vayikadshem means to get somebody ready or to prepare them for some rite or some ritual. And he arose early in the morning and offered burnt sacrifices equal to the number of all of them because he said, perhaps my sons have sinned by cursing God in their hearts. And this is how Job would do it every year. Now, a few notes now on this uh, on the words of this verse. Uh, Barech is used seven times in the drama, and note that significant number seven again. So here it says, Ulai Chatuvanai Uverechu Elohim Bilvavan. So sometimes the word Barech does not mean to bless, but it means, like it does here, to curse. The book of Job uses this euphemism to avoid saying that they may have cursed God, because that's a nasty thing to say. So instead, they use a euphemism that says they bless God, but it really means to curse God. So, if it shows up seven times, how can you tell the difference between when Barech means curse and when it means bless? So the answer is from con- from context. Here, obviously, Job is worried that his sons are internally committing a sin, and therefore it can only make sense that they're cursing God, not blessing God. In any event, so he offers a sacrifice to wipe out their possible uh, uh, sin. This, the fact that uh, seven sacrifices are also very common in ancient rituals, so, such as uh, the ones done by Bilam and Balak in chapter 22 of the book of Numbers, where there are seven sacrifices brought. Uh, and it's also, in fact, the number Rashi points out. It's the number of altars set up by our forefathers. The number seven, very significant. Uh, the reference... By the way, that Job woke up early in the morning to give sacrifices is very reminiscent of Abraham getting up early in the morning to do what he must do. Uh, and, and there are quite a few connections between the characters of Abraham and the character of Job. 
but unfortunately, a full study of the comparisons to the book of Genesis would really divert us from our goal of learning a chapter a day, so we'll have to um, leave more in-depth study for another forum. Now, in verse 6, the next verse, after we've seen this party going on, uh, on a daily basis, probably during harvest season, so in verse 6, the scene switches to the heavens, where God's heavenly host is gathering around him, that is, the angels are gathering around him. And this switch from heaven from earth to heaven, happens over and over. That is, we, we kind of seesaw back from earth to heaven, from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven. And it happens over and over in the first two chapters. And as I said, to me, it speaks of a dramatic performance. And it was on the day. Now, the day seems to be Rosh Hashanah, the day of judgment, since that fits the setting where the Satan will come and charge the evildoers before God so that, that God will punish them for their sins of the previous year. But either way, it says, so it certainly must have been a specific day. Anyway, continuing on with the translation of the verse, and the host of God, i.e. the angels, came to attend the Lord. Lehitatsev means they stood before him. And the Satan also came among them. And now, I suppose, is the uh, best time to talk about this character of the Satan. Now, the Satan has been adopted by uh, the Christian faith as a fallen angel the one who was given free will and rebelled against God, and then ultimately seduces man to commit sin as well. This mythology originates from the Second Temple Jewish writings. This, um, uh, these beliefs are really originally quite Jewish. However, since the idea of Satan became a cause celeb in Christian thought, so the rabbinic thought really uh, approached it with a certain amount of caution. So Rav Sajigon, for instance, doesn't even want to identify the Satan as the angelic or supernatural Satan, but it says that it was just some ruler of another land who wanted God to challenge Job. This is obviously not the plain sense of the text, uh, and Sarah Sajagon is clearly being polemical uh, against um, uh, adopting what he felt was somebody else's religious belief and making them back into Jewish beliefs. Um, and again, this forum does not allow a full explanation of of the origin of the Satan and other supernatural creatures, so I would like to limit the evidence to that found in Tanakh, in the Bible, which is the form of this class, and I think it will explain a lot about what the Jewish belief of what the Satan is all about. In the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 24, it says that the anger of God, Af Hashem, uh, that he fell towards the nation of Israel, caused God to instigate David to run a census, which was a sin, thereby allowing God's anger that he wanted to bring down upon David and upon his people to to do so. So essentially, it was an instigation. He pushed David into committing a sin so he could have an excuse to to bring down the anger he wanted to bring uh, down. Now, theologically, this is very difficult because it, it seems like God has set them up and cause them to sin where they would not have done so had he had he left them to their own designs. And therefore, when the same story about David is rewritten by Ezra in the post-destruction of the first temple time, that is in exilic times, and that story is essentially copied word for word in the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 21, the word Af Hashem, the anger of God, has been replaced with the word Satan, that is, Satan is the one who seduces David into committing a sin and bringing the wrath of God down on his people. So Satan is the substitute, or perhaps more accurately, the personification of God's anger. 
And I would like to suggest that it could be that with the suffering so great during exilic times, see, as bad as the suffering got before the temple fell, you could always say, well, you know, God willing, things will get better and I'll be able to go to the temple and we'll be able to have our nation back. But during the exilic times, there is no nation, there is no people, there is no temple, there is nothing to comfort them in their massive pain. And therefore, when they looked back at the stories in Tanakh and they said, the idea that God would instigate people into bringing destruction down upon themselves, that God would seem so, I know, cruel, that was too difficult to bear. So what the people did was they created a personification of God's anger, of God's destructive nature in this world, and they called that that personification the Satan. Um, and what they did is essentially create a, 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 a layer, a shield, a conceptual shield between God and the destruction that people were experiencing in the world. That is not God's fault, there's a layer in between. Of course, it's just a metaphor. That That is, it's just a personification. And people understood that the Satan was a personification. And that's why here in the drama section, we can speak about the Satan... Whereas Job in the actual philosophy section never references the Satan. He doesn't show up. Job always knows that it's God who's steering the, the wheel and is God and God alone who is throwing troubles God, Job's way. And Job is throwing his questions not at some Satan, but throwing his challenge directly at God. Nonetheless, having a Satan character makes for excellent drama, so let us return to the drama. Vayomra Adonai el Satan, me'ayin tavo, vayana Satan et Adonai vayomar mishut ba'aret umithitalech ba. And the Lord said to the Satan, where are you coming from? And the Satan answered the Lord and said, from traveling the earth and from walking to and fro in it. The words shut, that is, when the Satan says, Mishut Ba'aretz, I was, I was, I was traveling around the earth. Shut is close to Satan, just with a switch of the shin and the, and the sin, which is really a very small letter change. And in Jeremiah 5.1, the word shut is used, um, as it is used here, which is where God is asking him to shut, he's, he's asking him to search the area for either justice or or or, um, or 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 bad or evil doing or or the lack of justice, and in Isaiah actually shoot is used a little bit differently. It describes the pounding sound that the enemies make when they strike their horses and goad them on to attack, and it applies a certain aggressiveness or even a a violence and destructive nature of movement. So I think the image here by putting these ideas together is that Satan, which of course is really God's midat hadin, God, obviously God doesn't need to send anybody to do something he's able to do himself uh, with his omniscience and omnipresence. So God is his midat hadin, or here this personification of his midat hadin, his Satan, is essentially um, going around and seeing who deserves which just rewards. Uh, he's saying who needs to be, uh, well, he's not really in charge of the uh, reward part. He's more in charge of seeing who has sinned and therefore telling God who needs to be punished. Vayomer Adonai el satan hasamta libcha alavdi iyov ki in kamohu ba'aretz ishtam v'yashar yurei Elohim v'sar meira. So God said to the Satan, and keep in mind that um, that all of this works beautifully as a drama, a performance. Because otherwise God comes off actually a bit a, a bit smug when he says, Hasamta Libchalavdi, oh, did you pay attention to 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 my servant Job? 
Uh, but if it's a drama, it works very, very nicely. Um, anyway, continuing on with the verse, there is no one like him in the land, a flawless and straight person who fears good, who, who fears God, I'm sorry, and avoids evil. Note that God's words match the narrator's description of Job from verse 1. And again, to me, this reads a, a, as a performance, because when you have repetition over and over again, when the narrator subs something and then the character of God says the exact same thing as the narrator, one gets the sense that uh, um, that essentially we are... Um, in a drama, in a in a stage play, if you will. That doesn't make it less seriously. I just think that's the format of how the author of Job wanted it done, so it would be as effective as possible. The Satan answered the Lord and said, You think Eo fears God for free? That he's a God fearing person for nothing? Now note the two, two different names for God here. Vayan uh, Satan et Hashem. The Satan says back to Yudke Vavke, what we call Adonai, the the master. But Eov, who is a non-Jew, is not a Yurei Hashem, Yurei Yudke Vavke. He's a Yurei. He is a Yurei Elohim, uh, because the Elohim is the universal aspect of God. And therefore, Eov, not being a Jew, would not be a Yurei Hashem. He would be a Yurei Elohim. But the character who is sitting on the stage, to my mind, is the Yud Vavke we know because the audience is a Jewish audience. Now, when we get to the poetic discourse, that is the cream inside the Oreo cookie that I mentioned before, we'll notice that the name Hashem, Yud Vavke, Adonai, is com- almost completely absent. Why? Because the discourse is a universal discourse. It's about the attributes of God. It's not about his specific relationship with the Jewish people. In fact, the name Adonai only shows up twice in the entire 40 chapters of discourse, or 39 chapters of discourse, once in chapter 12, 9, and once in chapter 28, 28, 28, verse 28. But in both of those cases, the speaker there is merely quoting a famous Jewish idiom. So he uses God's name only because he's quoting the Jewish people to prove his point. The essence of the book, A Discourse on Theodicy, is, is really meant to be a universal problem, and not just a Jewish one. So the author uses the universal name of Elohim, and in fact, it makes the hero a non-Jew to make sure that People understand that this is a universal problem. However, the Hashem who's on the stage, that's our Hashem. And that's why the Satan talks to Hashem and not to an Elohim. Getting back to this, uh, Satan's essential point, what he's saying is nobody is an altruist. And, and that's a key issue. You think he fears you for nothing? That is, he's saying people do good not because they do good for good's sake. They're not because they're altruistic. There's no such thing as altruism. They do good because they expect the payback. And when they get the payback, then it convinces them that they should be doing more good things. But if you take away the payback, and then the person will stop doing good. And what I mean by stop doing good, I mean good with a capital G. Hello, Ata, the, the Satan continues by saying, Hello, Ata, Sachta Bado, Uvaad Beito, Uvaad Kola Shalom Isaviv, Maseyadav Beirachta, Mikneu Paratz Baaretz. Isn't it true? He's a real uh, prosecuting attorney. Isn't it true that you protect him? Notice the uh, the switch from some from the samach to the sin in the word sachta. That is normally it would be with a with a samach, and here it's with a sin, and that does happen in biblical Hebrew. And in fact, actually, in fact, in this book, uh, there is the samach and the sin is kind of switch around a little bit. 
where the Samach turns into a sin. But anyway, getting back to the verse, you protect him and you protect his family and everything he has. You have blessed the works of his hand and his cattle grow exponentially throughout the land. V'ulam! But send out your hand and strike what he owns, that is, destroy his possessions. I swear that he will curse you to your face. Uh, is used to imlo is used to um, initiate a vow that something will be performed. The word. Uh, and obviously the word bless here, Yivarachecha al panecha, obviously means he will curse you to your face, although in the previous verse it meant he will bless you. Or he doesn't bless you except for the fact that you do, do good for him. Vayomer Adunai el satan hinei kol asher lo biyadecha, rak elav al tishlach yadecha, vayetzea satan meim pnei Adunai. And the Lord said to Satan here, everything he owns is in your hands, in your control. But to him, i.e. his person, his body, you can't send out your hand. That is, you can't affect him directly. So the Satan went out before the Lord. And with the exit of the Satan stage left, the scene comes back down to earth to that very day, probably Rosh Hashanah, in the house of Job himself, in verse 13. Hayom, it was on that day, It was on that day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking the wine, uh, drinking wine in the house of their eldest brother. Remember that Rosh Hashanah falls out during the harvest season, so therefore it fits the idea that this was a once a year type of seven day party, and in fact, um, it, it seems that maybe the harvest season, the banquet cycle has just begun. That is, the Bechor gets the Sunday, the first day of the cycle. And a messenger came to Job and said the cattle were plowing and the donkeys, that is, the ones that belonged to Eov, and the donkeys were grazing next to him. And the forces of Sheba, that is the queen of, remember the famous queen of Shva, Sheba, um, they fell on them and they took them and they killed the young servants by the sword and I alone escaped to tell you about it. So Sheba, uh, as in the queen of, although this is happening much later, was a nation living um, either on the African side or on the Arabian side of the lower Red Sea area, right before it spills out into the... Uh, into the Gulf. That is, and, and this fits with our story being in the Edom region, since it's doubtful that marauders would have come from much farther away to attack uh, Eov's properties. Odzeh Midaber, while this one was still talking, and again, this really, as I said, feels like a stage production. So three times we have the same phrase. While this one was talking, another messenger runs on the scene, spilling out his guts about the disaster that takes place in a different part of Eov's life. So while one is still talking, another one runs in, and and there's an overlapping dialogue, actually, uh, bringing more bad news. Now, I had heard once that in the early days of American cinematic history, a character would always wait for, if you look at old movies, you'll see that that uh, it's very much true, 20s and 30s and the mid-40s, that one character always waits for another character to finish their line before starting their own. That's in, in, in the movies. And it, it's kind of stilted. It feels unnatural. And in fact, the first person to break that trend and to have the characters overlap with dialogue was um, Orson Welles in Citizen Kane. And he really shattered that awkwardness. Well, all I could say is that ancient Hebrew had it 
much before Orson Welles rediscovered it. And here, essentially, to my mind, you have a stage setting and you have one character speaking over the, with his disaster, right over the disaster of the other person. Same words. While this one was still talking, this one, i.e. the other one, and, and the word zeh indicates like pointing at a new one. And again, I think that really indicates characters walking onto a stage. Uh, anyway, getting back to the verse, another one came and said, a powerful fire... A godly fire fell from the skies and burnt amongst the sheep and the goats and their tenders, that is, the Na'arim are the people who tend the sheep, and devoured them, and I alone escaped to tell you about it. The word um, Elohim, for H Elohim, it probably doesn't mean exactly a godly fire, it means like a great or powerful fire, um, which is nearly supernatural in its in its scope. So it's uh, bad news for Job, and we're not finished with the bad news just yet. Odzemidaber, while this one was talking, Vizeba Vayomar, Kazdim Samush Losharoshim, Vayifshitu Alagmalim, Vayikachum, Vetan Nearim, Hikulafi Harev, Vayimalata, Rakanil Vadil Hagidlach. While this one was talking, another came in and said, Chaldeans, those are the Babylonians who dwelled in lower Mesopotamia, very close to the Persian Gulf and who for a short time at the destruction of the first temple from about the year 580 to 530 really ruled all of that area of Mesopotamia and further. So Chaldeans formed a triple-fronted attack and set upon the camels and they took them and they put their tenders, their na'arim to the sword and I alone escaped to tell you about it. And now for the fourth news item. Ad Zemedaber, actually it reads Ad Zemedaber, but it's the same sense. And while this one was still talking, So while this one was still talking, another one came in and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their eldest brother. Note the word-for-word repetition, as we've seen before, which again, I think, really points to this dramatic performance. And behold, a great wind came from across the desert, striking the four corners of the house, and it fell on the lads, and they died. In this case, the word Narim are not servants or tenders, but it means his own young kids. And I alone escaped to tell you about it. So, all the possessions, which were methodically described in verse 2, through verse 4, and described how wealthy and wonderful Leob's life are, every single one of them has been destroyed, methodically. Vayakom iyo vayikrat nilo, vayagoz et rosho, vayipol artsavishtachu. And Job arose, we will see in the discourse that the reason why he was sitting is because his seat was at the gates of the city, and he was in fact the head judge for his city, and maybe for his entire state. And he tore his cloak, and he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Vayomer, Arom yatsati mi betamimi, varom ashuv shama, Adonai natan, vadonai lakach, yihi shem adonai varach. And he said, I left my brother's, my mother's womb naked, and I will return there naked, i.e. I was born with nothing, I will die with nothing. 
The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. That's right, it's from the sentence. Let the name of the Lord be blessed. Yehi shem Adonai mivarach. Bechol zot lo chata iyov v'lo natan elohim. Through all of this, Job did not sin and he did not spit. Tifla probably means to spit literally or figuratively towards God. So, we're at the end of chapter one and we're, the, and we're at the end of round one. It's Job one and the Satan zero. Round two, we will bring you tomorrow.